prophet one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord, and note this phrase, and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels. I enjoy this latter phrase here in verse 17 when you think of it in contrast to Romans 8.31. It says here, And I will spare them as a man spareth his own son. We think of the Lord being not spared on Calvary's cross, the Heavenly Father not sparing His Son, that He might spare us and give us a promise like this. But notice this book of remembrance, and we're seeking this week to make it just a little bit longer as together we fellowship in the name of the Lord Himself. Psalm 34, we'll read another familiar and short verse. Psalm 34 and verse 3 says, O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. Bring Him up close. Magnify the Lord. Spend some time exalting His name. And it's our desire as we read here at the very beginning of Scripture to just simply let the Lord present Himself to us and to magnify Him. There's a cute story about a uh, mother who took her son, teenage son, of course, because they're worried about what they wear, to the store to get a pair of pants. And if you know anything about fashion and style, which I don't, but I've heard this, if you want someone to look tall, you give them a nice long pleat right in front of their pants. Don't give them a cuff, because a cuff gives that horizontal look. And it makes them look a little squattier. Now, if you're really tall, then you make sure they wear a cuff to bring them down to our size, like the rest of us. But she went in and she found just the perfect pair of pants for her son. It was on sale. She purchased it. She went home. He wore them every day to school. Looked great on them. There came the point when she had to wash them. She washed them. He put them on Monday morning and they came up to his knee. And the mother was incensed. So she goes back to the mall with her son. They're trotting down the mall. The salesman who had sold it to him sees them coming, runs out and says, My, how your son has grown. (laughs) Now, of course, we know the opposite, don't we? And unfortunately, in our lives today, with the busyness of it, with the affairs of men that we're involved with, it's so easy for God to shrink and for us to grow. And our motto is that in John 3, that He must increase. And I must decrease. And our tendency is that we don't trust Him like we used to trust Him, perhaps, or like we should. We don't look to Him for all of our blessings as we should. We don't rely on Him like we should. And so He can shrink in our estimate. And here we have in this little verse about exalting His name, O magnify the Lord with me. And that's our desire this week. Now, just yesterday we mentioned a couple of things shortly. The first was this, that we see God revealing Himself to us in three distinct and simple ways. And you can think of others, but this is easy to remember. Through His revelation of His Word was one that we spoke about. Through His works that we see around was another, even His eternal power and Godhead. And then fully and finally, in the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, the eternal Word of God. And so we have the works and the words and then the Word. 
And then we spoke about how the Lord chooses to reveal Himself in a certain way. And let's turn then to Genesis chapter 1. And notice how our God is going to begin to draw us to Himself in these sessions as we read the Word of God, as He explains to us something of who He is. He's going to start with a particular statement that's made. It's very short. It's a simple prepositional phrase. And our Bibles open where all of the philosophies of men have to eventually end up after they wind around and around with God. And we're set at His feet immediately. And it says this simply, In the beginning, God created. There's a word of action. We have this preposition. We have this time period. We have a person that's involved. And then we have this action. God created. Now, you all are very familiar that this word that is rendered here in our Scripture, God, is the word Elohim. It's a word that you already know the definition of if you spent some time in your Bible. You don't need anything extra biblical to recognize something about the definition of this word, this little Elohim starting out with E-L. You'll find it many times in Scripture, more than you realize as you read through it. You would have known the definition of it just merely by reading Scripture. And in a moment, we'll talk about some of the other things you would realize concerning it. Now, I would like you, we don't have a lot of time this morning, but just for one minute, to have you jot down on your papers that many of you have with your pencils, some of the names of the Lord that come to mind. And I'll give you a few little hints that come through. You can do the ones that are obvious like this. God. Lord. Then you might think of some... Go ahead, you can start writing. I won't interrupt you or anything. But symbols. How about some symbols that render to us something concerning the character of the Lord? How about some of these names which some people will call the compound names? There's some that you might be writing down now. Well, before we start, and now that you have just a few of these names, I didn't even give you a minute. A minute goes quite slowly when it's quiet. But before we start, let's just lay the groundwork just a bit so that we don't fall off somewhere in the week again. We are going to take this revelation of the Lord directly from Scripture. It must be a revelation. He is the incomprehensible God. He is the one that it says in Isaiah 40, to whom then... Will ye liken God? To whom will you compare Him? Every analogy that you can make is precarious. And so we have to come to Scripture to find the revelation. So we simply come to the Word of God to listen to Him. Secondly, we might say this. We're going to do it by order of revelation. The Lord is going to build for us His own character. Starting with a certain foundation and ending in a certain place. We're not going to get very far, but we trust we can lay some of the foundation in our studies. So there must be an orderly manner in which the Lord is revealing Himself. Notice this also, that as we recognize it's a revelation, and as we spend time in the Word rather than elsewhere, we're not going to spend time in dictionaries or places like that. People will call it etymology sometimes. That's etymos, is the truth of a word. 
Frankly, much of etymology lies in darkness and obscurity, doesn't it? And we have to conjecture. But we don't have to conjecture when you come to Scripture. There's a wonderful statement that goes like this. It is amazing how the Bible can shed light on the commentaries. Now, you've probably heard it on the other side, right? I'm having a struggle, so I'm going to go to the commentary. But it's incredible how the Word of God can shed some light on a definitional book or on the commentary. So we're going to stick with the Word of God. And then let's notice this, that this kind of a study is not a Bible study course or not educational per se. It's transformational. We desire it. It's relational. We desire it to bring us into a deeper relationship with with the one that first loved us and the one that we love. And then to see us transformed into his image. One of the mighty men of David in 2 Samuel 23, his name is Benaiah. And my wife and I have thought if the Lord ever gives us a little boy, we might at least slide it in as a middle name. But it means this. A God-built man. Someone whom the Lord built. And we know the Scripture in the New Testament in in Corinthians chapter 3, but we all with unveiled face, the veil having been taken away, beholding as in a mirror or as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into His image from glory to glory. In what way? Even as by the Spirit of the Lord. There's that phrase, a God-built man, the Spirit Himself to the Word of God, not educating us, per se, but transforming us. So there's our simple study. Now let's read in chapter 1 and verse 1 in this book of Genesis one more time. What does He first want us to know? What does He firstly want us to understand? This little name Elohim isn't used nearly as many times as many other names. And if we were going to say, well, maybe this other name is more important because it's number of uses, we can do that, I suppose. But this is the one that appears first. And he says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The fourth word of Scripture. His signature at the very beginning, stamping the whole of Scripture as His. Something to be trusted in every word. It's stamped as God's Scripture. And it's amazing how it opens as divine canon begins. It sets us right in His presence. We're introduced to the Lord in His essential fullness and the solitariness of His being. And we just sit at His feet and we begin to listen to Him introduce Himself. And He says, Elohim. Now, let's make a couple of logistical comments here again, or definitional or whatever comments, as long as we're at it. In our Bibles, thank the Lord, those that have typed it out or written it out have seen fit to give us some help. And whenever we see capital G, small o, and small d, what name is that? There are a few little variations here and there, but it is Elohim. It is this name that we're coming to at this point in time. Capital G, small o, small d. Very occasionally you'll find it with a capital L and the others being small, with Lord. But this is Elohim, and they have given us this help. So, when we see capital G-O-D, it is this particular word that's being brought to our attention. And oftentimes it helps us in understanding and interpreting the text that we're reading. 
Because the Lord's going to tell us something about what this name means as He reveals Himself to us. Secondly, let's notice this. Elohim is a plural noun. Now, you already knew that. Because you've been reading through your Bible, and you realize that over and over and over again, we see this I am at the end of a word being found in Scripture. This isn't something new to you. There's such a thing as called a cherub, right? There is a seraph. But now you say, yes, but normally I hear of it being a cherubim. Or a seraphim. Not a, but that's plural, is it not? There were the gibberim. These were a multitude of big men. Not just one. And so immediately it comes to our attention that this is a plural noun. Now I was speaking just recently to an individual whose native tongue was Egyptian or whatever the technical term might be for it, the proper name. And he said this, you know, it's no different in most languages, whether it's um, Arabic, whether it is the Jewish language, whether it is French, he made the example of. I don't think we have it in English as far as I know. But there's a distinction between the singular and the dual or the duad and then that which is three or more. There's a distinction. It's done so in Hebrew. It's that way in Arabic. It's that way in French. You can probably think of many other languages yourself in which it is the case. And right here, we have at the beginning of Scripture, this idea, it's the foregleam of Trinity. It is not a singular, per se, though He is a unified God. It is not even a duad. It must be three or more. And so it's in the plural is this word, a foregleam of the Trinity itself, in the plural. Now, the noun is in the plural, but the verb isn't. Or the noun is in the singular, but the verb is not. I'm sorry, maybe I have it backwards. Do I have it backwards? Sometimes I say things all wrong. The, con- the construction of the sentence is in the plural. Or is in the singular. I'm sorry, I did say it wrong. This will, this will really reinforce it in your mind, right? Maybe you won't be able to forget it now at my expense. So we have this plural name, but the construct is in the singular. And that's why we read many times phrases like this, some of which are found later on in chapter 1, let us make man in our image. See, that's in the plural. And right at the beginning, the Lord gives us this idea that He is a singular God but He is also a triune God. Amazing, right at the very beginning. It is also, we could say, its gender is the plural ending for a masculine noun. That's all nice to know, isn't it? But, now let's read about what the Scripture says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 3, God said, let there be light. Verse 4, God saw the light. Verse 5, God called the light day. Verse 6, and God said... And we carry right on through the chapter. We come to chapter 2 and verse 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them were completed. We have these two phrases here in verse 1 of chapter 2, which gives us an outline of what's happened before. You notice the first phrase, two sets of three days. The first phrase, the heavens and the earth were finished. The second phrase, all the host of them finished as well. And on the seventh day, God, Elohim, ended His work which He had made. 
Verse 3, And God blessed the seventh day, sanctified it, because that in that He had rested from in, because that in it He had rested from all His work, which God created and made. And so we find this name, I believe, 35 times over, just in these first few verses, up to chapter 2 and verse 3. This God of creation. This God who can make something out of nothing. Whose Scripture is already telling us must be infinite in wisdom and infinite in power. To out of nothing make everything. And so we have this God, Elohim. Also, a triune God. One thing I learned when I was in the South just a bit, working for a number of years. I also married a Southerner, by the way. And that is that they have a uh, wonderful sense of the spirit, this spiritual side of the Lord. They have a word which is used this way. It's y'all, right? And you're familiar with that word. Now, one thing I found out when I uh, sat down at a restaurant being from the West was this. That you'd sit down to have a little bite to eat by yourself, of course, and the waitress would come up and say, what will y'all have to eat? And I'd look to my left and I'd look to my right. There's nobody there. It's just me. But you pretty soon recognize that's okay, you know. Okay, so you all will have this. You feel like you need to order three or four different orders instead of one. You're not sure who's eating with you. And so they continue on in this manner, you know. What will you all pay for? You think, all right, who's going to come up and help me out in this one? But what you do find out is this. That y'all is singular in the South. Now, you may not have known that. But the plural of y'all is this. All y'all. That's what it is. Now, if you go to Texas or you go to North Carolina or South Carolina or somewhere, just remember that. So if they come up to you and say, y'all, that's just you. But if it's all y'all, you can include somebody else in there. And so they have this idea of the personage of the Lord in that sense, that He is individual, but He is also a plurality. And we know it as the Father and the Son and the Spirit. He is infinite in power. Now, let's go to the next time, that the next major time that we read of this name in Scripture. It's in Genesis chapter 6, and we're just going to hit some high points, obviously. Our time is already almost gone, if you can believe it. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 12. Let's read this Elohim appearing before us, our Lord, our God. Chapter 6 and verse 12, And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth, and God said unto Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them in the earth. Verse 17, And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife, and thy son's wives with thee. Verse 22. Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him. God is the God of creation. He set it up. And now the Lord is going to destroy much of that creation. But you see, He is the God of creation, is He not? But there's something else here that He begins to tell us, and that is this, that with an individual who finds grace in his sight... He is going to commit Himself unto Him. He is going to swear unto Him. He is going to be faithful unto Him. 
And in spite of what He's going to do in His power to destruct that which He has once brought up, He's going to commit Himself to an individual that finds grace in His sight. Notice in Genesis 9, we find this name again very eminent, beginning in verse 11. And I will establish My covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you, and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. Verse 16, And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And so here we have, again, the Lord committing Himself. He is the great and the mighty God, we know, in absolute power. But now He is in these latter two Scriptures which we have read as step by step we've looked for His name to pop for us off the page. He is now committing Himself to mankind. Making Himself responsible for certain things. Do you know that if the Lord ever would cease to fail in one of His covenants, one of His commitments, He would cease to be the mighty God. He would cease to be God. And here He is now committing Himself unto mankind. His name is at stake If He is powerful, He can do it. If He is now faithful, He will do it. And if there's one word that I would bring before our attention in this, or the thought that comes to my mind is His faithfulness between me and between you, between the earth and between what I have said, I am going to be faithful and it will never, ever fail. He can do what He says, That's omnipotence. That's what we read in the beginning. Then next is, He will do what He says. And that is His simple faithfulness. Let's go to Genesis 17 very swiftly because we're going to find that phrase over and over again. I will. I will. Genesis 17. Jabe made reference to this yesterday with Abram. And Abram fell on his face and God talked with him. This is Elohim again. The same name. Capital G. Small o. Small d. And God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Verse 6. And I will make thee an exceeding, and I will make thee exceeding fruitful. And I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. Look now in verse 15. And God said unto Abraham, As for Sarai thy wife, thou shalt not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. And now here's our phrase. And I will bless her and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her. And she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Then Abraham fell on his face. Fell upon his face. 
And so we have this phrase, I will. Again here, we find the Lord covenanting or committing Himself as the faithful God. So we're spending some time just reading through these eminent portions where the Lord brings this name to our attention. Verse 7, if you glance back at it again, you might call the eternal security of the nation of Israel. Now, we know that our salvation is eternally secure, do we not? Their future is as well. An everlasting covenant. When Paul picks this up in the New Testament in that mid-portion of Romans chapter 9, he's going to reiterate it once again. That when God has said, I will, when God has stated based upon His everlasting name that He would be faithful and committed Himself, He cannot and will not fail. And right in that middle portion, chapter 9, we might call it this, Israel's past selection. Chapter 10, Israel's present suspension, in a manner of speaking. But then chapter 11, and we find this, Israel's prospective salvation. You will not find a promise in the Bible that God has failed to keep, and you never, ever will. God stays true to His promises. I think of that hymn that says, Standing on the Promises of God. Standing on the promises that cannot fail. And so we stand upon this God who is able, and this God who is faithful. Able to preserve His people, that's Elohim. And who is faithful to preserve His people. Now, we're just going to end before we turn to the New Testament, because in every case, I would like us, as we mentioned, we're going to read through the Word. We're going to listen to what the Lord has to say for us, and then we're going to turn to the fullness of it, the eminence of it, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it true that, yes, the Jehovah of the Old Testament is the Jesus of the New, but is it also just as true that the Jesus of the New Testament is the Elohim of the Old Testament. The first name that He's given in the New Testament, outside of chapter 1 and verse 1 of Matthew's chapter 3, when it gives the reference to it, is a reference to El, to Emmanuel. And He is not, or He is, is He not, the Elohim of the Old Testament. But let's think just very quickly in our remaining minute or so. God is faithful. The God of Abraham that we just read, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Noah, the God of Paul, the God of James and John, and the God of you, is He not? And it brings my mind to this little book that's stuck in the middle of the Old Testament major prophets called the Lamentations of Jeremiah. Because oftentimes we wonder how faithful the Lord is when we are in trials like that. And this little book starts out in chapter 1 with 22 verses. Chapter 2, 22 verses. Chapter 4, 22 verses. Chapter 5, 22 verses. It's all the chapters that are there. But right in the middle is that chapter 3. Three times 22. And at the heart of that chapter is this verse that you and I know well. Thy mercies, they're always new, aren't they? Of thy mercies we are not consumed. And Jeremiah says this, Great is Thy faithfulness. The Lord is faithful unto us. And we long to come to know Him in a deeper sense.
So that no matter where we are in life, we can turn back and say, Lord, You are able, You are all-powerful, almighty, capable of anything, and You're faithful to me. We've been hearing, haven't we, about the Lord's faithfulness to many people in the Gospel. His faithfulness that as we pray, He brings situations before us that are astounding, above all that we could ask or think. Every prayer that we could possibly ask to the Lord, every request is an offense to what He could actually do in that situation, to His power. Because He is all-powerful and He is all-faithful. So we have this introduction before us of the Lord. He is altogether powerful. And He's altogether faithful. And He's going to take those things and He's going to bestow them upon us. Those that He loves. Let's just close very quickly. Dear Lord, we thank You so much for our God. There is no one more infinite. No one that even compares. He stands alone in majesty. We're thankful, Lord, that He is always faithful. Never has there been a failing thing concerning the Lord. God can do anything but fail. And we're so thankful for Him. Our Father, we continue this morning to seek Thy face. May You give us a life-changing manifestation of this God who is so brilliant, so wonderful, that we cannot help but love Him, cannot help but obey Him, cannot help but desire to seek Him further and to know Him more. We pray in His name. Amen.